The second reading is also the sermon text for today in which we are given a warning against idleness. The second reading is from 2 Thessalonians, the third chapter. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. This is the word of the Lord. In the 28th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew, Jesus Christ our Lord, ascending into heaven, gave the church instructions to be a missionary church. And Jesus said, Go into the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The instructions were twofold. To baptize and to teach. And the teaching part is very important because in in those days, people who became Christians didn't know anything about Christianity. The message was new. The gospel was new. And people had to learn it by being taught it. Jesus said, baptize, that's the easy part. Teach them what it means. That takes more time. In the earliest days of the church, it sometimes happened that people were baptized without almost no instruction at all. In the 16th chapter of the Gospel according to Saint John, the book of Acts, Paul and Silas, on Paul's second missionary journey, came to the city of Philippi in, in northern Greece. And he began preaching the gospel there. And he got in trouble. And he was thrown in jail. I've never gone to jail for Jesus. I wish I could. Do you realize how many people in the early part of the church were jailbirds? Have you ever thought about that? John the Baptist was a jailbird. Jesus went to jail. Peter went to jail. John went to jail. James went to jail. Paul went to jail. Silas went to jail. I've never gone to jail for Jesus. I wish, I wish I could. Maybe I don't make enough waves. Whatever the reason, Paul and Silas found themselves in jail in Philippi. And one night they were in jail in the middle of the night, and, and Paul and Silas were singing hymns and praying. And the, and the prisoners and the jailer were listening. And in the singing and in the praying the message was being shared. All of a sudden, there was a big earthquake. 
and the chains by which the uh, prisoners were fastened that were fastened into the wall somehow came loose and all the prisoners were free and it was possible for them to run away and when the jailers saw that he got his sword and he was going to kill himself because he knew if the prisoners escaped he would be responsible and the Romans would kill him anyway. He drew his sword and at that moment St. Paul yelled out we're all here. Don't do anything for yourself. We're all here. And the jailer asked this question. What must I do to be saved? Probably the most important question that anybody can ever ask. What must I do to be saved? And Paul said, well, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you and your family will be saved. And so the jailer took Paul and Silas and they washed their wounds, whatever had happened to them. They gave them a little bit of instruction and they were baptized that night. The baptism was easy, but they didn't get much instruction. And pretty quickly, Paul and Silas left. We can only hope that this jailer joined the church, the young church in Philippi, because those converts had so much to learn. Now, when you think about what the people have to learn, the fundamental message of the, of the church, the fundamental, our fundamental message, is about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We never want to forget that. That's the message. Here it is. 1 Corinthians 15. I hand it on to you as a first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is to Peter, then he appeared to the Twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died, then he appeared to James. Then he appeared to all the apostles. Last of all, he appeared to, appeared to me. That's the message that we have to share about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. But there's more. There's so much more to be taught. There's so much more to be learned. For example, grace. You hear about Grace. We're saved by grace. Salvation by grace. I would hope that every person here, if asked, could explain what grace is. If someone asked you, your church teaches about grace, what is it? I would hope everybody here could give an explanation. Because certainly you've been in church long enough to have been instructed about the meaning of grace. Faith. I would hope that every person here could give a witness not just of your faith, but what faith is. Faith in what? Faith in whom? 
How are grace and faith connected? That's stuff we have to know. And you know it by being instructed in it. My guess is that everybody here has heard lots of sermons about faith and grace. But there's more. What does it mean to be born again? I'm a believer in being born again. What does that mean? Are you born again? What does it mean to be a new creation in Christ? St. Paul wrote, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. What does that mean? But there's more. The values and standards and morals of Christianity. You have to learn that because the morals and values and standards of the Christian faith are much different than the morals and the values and the standards out there. That was true in the first century. It's true in this century as well. And those things are taught and they are learned. Jesus said, baptize and teach. And the teaching part is so important. That's why we have Sunday school. Now the question is, how far... What part of life does the Christian faith cover? How far should the influence of the Christian faith be on life? And that's what this sermon is about. It's about this, that the Christian faith is so broad in its influence that it even extends to work. Christians work. Christians support themselves and their families, and they work. Now, how many sermons on work have you heard over the years? It took me 40 years to preach my first sermon on work. And yet the fact of the matter is that the Christian faith covers so much of life that it even covers working not being idle. When Paul and Silas left Philippi, they headed south. They headed south and went to the city of Thessalonica. And uh, they were preaching there. Uh, They were there for several weeks and they preached Christ crucified, Christ raised from the dead. And this time, they they weren't put in jail. They were run out of town. I've not been run out of town either. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. But anyway, within several weeks, they had gathered a Christian congregation. They had baptized them, and they had instructed them. But it was only seven or eight weeks or a couple of months. And then they got run out of town, and the people who were in charge of the church were also new converts. Paul and Silas left Thessalonica and went south. They went to Athens, and then they went to Corinth. And there was communication between Thessalonica and Corinth about what was going on in this new church. They were having problems. And so from Corinth, St. Paul wrote two letters in rather quick succession to address the church in Thessalonica about what was going on. One of them we read from today. And I want to look at that now. Now let's, let's bring this slide up. 
Now, this is today's reading. Now, what, what I want you to understand about this, this is a letter. St. Paul had no idea when he wrote this letter that it would wind up being in the church's holy book. He had no idea about that. When you write a letter, do you think someone is going to save it forever and, and think it's so wonderful? Paul had no idea about that. So as we read this, if you read it as a letter and not part of the Bible, it makes a lot more sense. So here's the letter. Here's the part that has to do with work. Now, we command you, brothers, notice the stick and the carrot. We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is to say, this teaching that's coming really comes from Jesus. This teaching has the authority of Jesus Christ behind it. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. The reference to the tradition is the instruction that Paul and Silas gave these people after they were baptized. First they were baptized, and then as Jesus said, they have to be instructed. And part of the instruction is about work. Now, you know, we've gone, I went 40 years before I preached on work and jobs and idleness. And yet in the short time that Paul had to instruct these people, that's part of what he taught them. Keep away from any brother who was walking in idleness. That doesn't sound very Christian, does it? Keep away from a Christian person who is, walk, who is being idle. Well, you know, being lazy. Laziness is contagious, isn't it? Laziness is more contagious than being industrious. Sin is more contagious than virtue. Because laziness and sin appeal to the lower parts of us. Not to the higher parts. Keep away from them because their example might, might turn you. Keep away from those who are walking in idleness. Next slide. Now, here in this letter, Paul decides to use himself as an example. A preacher shouldn't do this. To use yourself as an example, but that's what he does. He reminds them of the, the time he spent in Thessalonica. He says, you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. They remember that. When Paul and Silas came to town, they went to manpower and they got temporary jobs. So they could support themselves. Next slide. It was not because we do not have that right. They had a right to be supported by the church. One of the things that Jesus told his disciples when he sent them out uh, to, on mission work is when you come to a house and you're well received, let them support you. 
Jesus said, a worker is worthy of his hire. And as you find the people who are accepting of your message, they invite you in, they should support you. Jesus said, a worker is worthy of his hire. But St. Paul said, but we, we did not, we do not have that. It was not because we do not have that right. We have that right. But to give you in ourselves an example to, to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. Here's the command. If anyone will not work, let that person not eat in the church. If you won't work, then the church won't feed you. If you can't work, that's different. If you're looking for work, that's different. But if you're lazy, if you're living off other members of the church, you can starve. Does that sound harsh? Does it sound unchristian? Or is it just tough love? That's the way it is. If anyone will not work in the church, they can go hungry. Next. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Not busy at work, but busy bodies. I like that. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. How far does the influence of your Christian faith extend? It extends even to your working, to your working practices. Christians work. Christians support themselves. I think it was the philosopher Aristotle. I'm not sure, but I think so. I think Aristotle taught that work was for slaves. And free people didn't work. Because work was demeaning. Work was beneath free men and free women. Let the slaves do it. And of course, the economy of the ancient world ran on slavery. But you get a different picture when you turn to the Bible. In the story of the Garden of Eden, Adam is placed in the garden not to be on vacation, but to work. Adam's instructions were to tend and care for the garden. He had a job. God gave him a job, which gave work dignity. We work. Martin Luther, in the small catechism. How many of you learned the small catechism when you had confirmation class? I know Katie did. I'm I'm missing the hands. Yeah, all right. How many of you remember it? All right. I won't call on anybody to remember it, but here, in, in his explanation to the first article of the Creed, Martin Luther wrote this. I believe that God has created me and all that exists. He has given me and still preserved my body and soul with all their powers. He provides me with food and clothing, home and family, and daily work. 
For Luther, work was one of the things that God provided for his people. And that's the teaching here. Christians work. Christians should be the very best employees at whatever they do. It should be that if someone hired a Christian, they would get the very best possible employee. They'd be loyal, they'd be faithful, and they would be honest because they're Christians. And out of their Christian faith, they work in a diligent way. Christians are good employees. But Christians are not workaholics. We don't do that. When you put work first, and that's all you do, that is idolatry. As I taught the children several weeks ago, that God comes first in your life. That Val comes second in my life, and I come second in her life, because we put God first. But when you're a workaholic, when that's all you do is work, then that's your God. And that's idolatry. And we don't do that. Someone once said, well, people in America, maybe even Christian people, they worship their work, they work at their play, and they play at their worship. You have to think about that now. Let me say it again. They worship their work. They work at their play. And they play at their worship. Now those three things are very important. Work and play and worship. But Christians work at their work. We do. And we play at we pl as we play. And if I take my golf too seriously, then I'm working at it. It takes all the fun out of it. We work at our work, we play at our play, and we worship. We worship the Lord God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. This is the kind of teaching that people need. And it's amazing to see that the Christian faith is so broad that it covers even our work habits. Our work is a sign of our discipleship. Amen.